afternoon, Ryan Willard here, and here I am outside of Durham. The finest examples of medieval architecture in the UK, and it is an incredible feat of Gothic engineering. It really is a beautiful, beautiful cathedral but what's really interesting to me and I, th- I like the fact that I'm able to talk about this building because you're not actually allowed to take any photographs or any kind of digital visual record of the building which is actually works very well because then I can talk about it and give a different kind of narrative because these buildings were built to visually stun they were built to um, you know, have to facilitate an experience of awesomeness for people to understand the incredible capacity or have a sense of scale or have a, a connection with something greater than you were designed to be a spectacle, if you like. I often uh, compare these kinds of cathedrals to Hollywood blockbusters in the sense, there we go, we can hear the incredible sound of the bells which fill the entire uh, cityscape. Um, I often compare these kinds of buildings to Hollywood blockbusters because they are spectacle. They are designed to transmit a certain narrative, a story, in this case the story of Christ, but using a vast array of special effects. And the special effects are architectural effects, they are spatial effects, they are the effects of the grand by creating huge uplifting spaces that you can't help but feel almost small by, and kind of you're in the presence of something grander and greater. Um, The positioning of the building as well, it's kind of sitting above the river, it's kind of got a dominant view on the the whole town, and the whole town kind of looks up to the cathedral. And when you kind of start looking into it, there's kind of military reasons for this, there's kind of, the building has got a kind of fortified experience to it. Um, And of course the nature of the the church would have been one to dominate uh, or to express its power and control and its wealth and its status. Now I I talk about this particularly because I've just spent the last week or so in a very contemplative environment inside of a Buddhist monastery um, up in Northumberland where the practice is much more solitary in a lot of ways. Um, There is a community there but the practice of contemplation is one of going inwards. and the building and the structure is smaller and is designed more to facilitate connection with something inner of yourself and to provide a space for contemplation of your own subjective experience and of your own reality. It's a space to encourage questions as opposed to receive information. And for me, that's really fascinating. My, my tendency, my love of buildings, um, you know, my particular heartfelt buildings are the buildings that don't immediately impress you. They're not the buildings that you suddenly are wowed by. They're the, they're the buildings that kind of leave you with a questioning or leave you with a curiosity inside of them. So, Durham Cathedral, absolutely beautiful, well worth a visit. And also, have a look at the curious buildings, the buildings that just make you think after you leave them. So I'm sitting outside 
All Saints Church in West Dulwich. It's beautiful. It's orange. It's brick-like. It's got hundreds of bricks. It's kind of beautifully complementary to the green um, chestnut trees that line the street outside. And then the actual suburban setting in itself is pretty homogenous and unexcited. But the church is a wonderful wonderful building and I'm about to go inside and have a little snoop around and um, I'm, I, I, I pulled over I'm just driving past and I, I sometimes when I see a building that like this which is kind of set back it's beautiful it's kind of been well kept it's it's got some sort of historic interest I will pull over in my car and get out my old iPhone have a little look about what the building is about how when was it built when was it made um, and just get a sense of it. And I'm always fascinated by the kind of layering of space, the sort of historic elements um, that a, a place or a locale once had and how you can kind of transport yourself back to those ancient times or a past period and what we can do to retain that kind of um, sense of history, that kind of context of the past, because it's very important. When I was a kid, I remember I wanted to be an archaeologist. I didn't actually want to be an archaeologist, but I had, I remember being like four or five years old. I remember people being asking me what I wanted to be. And I kind of, I'm, even as a kid, I kind of felt sick and nauseous at the thought of, you know, being like working in an office. I'd seen pictures of offices and I thought, oh, I could never do that. I never want to do that. I want to be outside. I want to be digging holes. I want to be imagining what it was like in the past. And I remember as a very small kid being absolutely fascinated when we were sort of learning about Pompeii or learning about ancient Greeks or just even the Tudors. And this, you know, being a child and imagining that hundreds, thousands of years ago, there were different people inhabiting where I am right now, living a very, very different way of life. And that's what I still get from churches and old historic buildings and exploring the cities is that kind of reverie, that kind of imagination, that kind of fantasy almost. That's, it's a form of escapism as well, that kind of just wonder and awe of the human life that went on before me in this particular time. And now, you know, in this, in this context here, we've got this kind of very modern 1960s, um, you know, mass-produced housing opposite this church. And the context has changed, and undoubtedly that this would have been a kind of more pastoral area, the church would have been more prominent, you know, beautiful views across the landscape. Um, and it, it, the, the church probably would have been very, you know, very heavily inhabited. So that is one of the beauties of, you know, just sort of the architectural imagination and how it can be triggered, how we can preserve it. And, you know, the importance for us to understand where we've come from, to understand that the where we're living now is in this constant state of flux and change which is driven by human forces and it happens over long slow periods of time that are kind of almost imperceptible to us but it's happening right now and we are part of that cause spiritual architecture 
my most fascinating and deepest love of all buildings. Buildings which point towards something higher. Buildings which are used to communicate and connect us with something more than just our everyday thoughts and ideas. Or actually, we use those everyday thoughts and ideas or the everydaynessness as access to something divine, something spiritual. And architecture has always played a very important role in being a bridge, a connector, a conduit for earthly human experience and experience of the divine. Um, you know, buildings, cathedrals, temples, every all of these bits of architecture have always had great attention and cost and labor devoted to them. And often, you know, I find that intention of connection with something bigger or greater than yourself. You don't need to be a religious person or believe in, uh, in, in God or whatever. It is just a kind of a higher aspiration. It's something more, you know. You can, it can even be just a connection with the universe, a connection with life, a connection with wonder, a connection with awe, a connection with something more than you. Those kind of curious, emotive qualities. That is what architecture can create an atmosphere to facilitate and to encourage and to open up. And, you know, when you start bringing architecture like that into the everyday, when you start bringing architecture that makes us aware of the epicness of the universe, this is when we have something I would call spiritual. This is when we have architecture which is another level, which is something quite, quite unique. And there are great spiritual masters of architecture. Uh, there are modern masters. Um, Peter Zumthor, for example, has this incredible ability to be able to bring our attention to the atmosphere, the presence of the building's qualities. Um, Louis Kahn was another master who was able to use an architectural lexicon of presence, of spirituality. He often used to talk about silence and of light of being the main fabric and materials of architecture. Louis Barragans is another one to visit and to look at in terms of, the, you know, creating very simple, humble spaces which point towards the divine, which are able to elicit an experience which can set you off into a, a sense of awe, of wonder, of captivation, a kind of everyday trance-like state of mind. And... You know, when I was in Harlem recently, and there was over 400 different buildings uh, devoted to forms of worship, I found it interesting because you may have had like a shopfront which had become a mosque, or even a van, a little transit van had become like a, um, a mobile mosque, or had become a synagogue. These very humble, unassuming buildings, but there was an intention there to connect with something higher. So you have to kind of um, put aside any judgments or feelings or thoughts you have about religion and see it as a human endeavor to connect with something more than who we are right now. Some, a connection with yourself even, a connection with humanity, a connection with potential, connection with possibility, a new realm.
Greetings, here I am on the hill, about 158 meters above sea level, in the heart of Northumberland. I'm looking across the most beautiful, epic ruins of a, you know, 400-year-old agricultural farmyards. There are trees that have been weathered by hundreds of years of Northumberland sleet and snow. And there are dry stone walls with years and years, probably again hundreds of years worth of lichen growth that are just sort of gently creeping across the surface of these sandstone blocks, telling a story of, you know, of the weather patterns that have happened for those, for that amount of time. And I'm actually here in a monastery, a project which I've been working on for a number of years. And this project really has become one of the most important projects I've ever worked on. Not so much that it's, you know, it's a, an architectural masterpiece or it's particularly incredible design. It's very simple design, what we're doing. But what it's really establishing for me is a concept which I call slow architecture. And the monks live a life dedicated to a two and a half thousand year old philosophy established by the Buddha in India. This particular vein of Theravadan Buddhism originates from uh, Thailand in the forests and their whole lifestyle is devoted to slowing down and it's rare to work with a client who has such a long-term vision. The abbot, for example, is constantly talking about legacy, talking about how the building will perform and operate after his death and for the next generation of monastics, which is a really enlightened way to think about building because it puts the cost aspect into a different perspective. It starts to make us think about long-term gains and investment as opposed to short-term pain and discomfort um, which for buildings is the most is the most intelligent way to design we live in a culture where we build things with lifespans of 15 to 10 years which is disgusting quite frankly it's utterly insane um, there are buildings on this site which have been here for three to four hundred year old uh, years um, they've barely got any foundations and they've stood the test of time and it's rare that we as designers and architects design like that. Uh, and I really am passionate that, that we as a culture, as a society, begin to question our addiction to short-term gains because it is actually the most harmful way of thinking that we can, you know, that we, that we end up going through. And it's fascinating to make the parallels between, you know, successful entrepreneurs and they're constantly thinking about legacy. They're constantly thinking about the long-term gain and benefit. And this is exactly what we need to do with our buildings and our architecture. So I'm just about to get in the car and do a six-hour drive back down to London and I'll keep posting on my route. I'm outside a curious church. Um, I think I'm in Beckenham or somewhere like that, somewhere in the depths of South London. And we've got a little church which I've just pulled up to in my car and it's really cute and curious looking. So let me try and describe it to you. It's constructed out of a number of brick cylinders all interlocking into each other. The main part of the church seems like a gigantic large brick circular form with it's got like a little pointy crown on top of it and it's got these sort of little hats with, with 
crucifixes on it looking out. And it's just a really fascinating, cutely perched building, sort of gently sitting on the side of the road, cheerfully greeting passers-by and kind of just being very uplifting and inspiring. And this, for me, is what makes spiritual buildings so interesting because there's always the intention there, and I've said this before last week, the intention there for buildings to connect with something greater than ourselves. Now, I don't really give a shit if it's a Christian church or it's a mosque or it's a, a Buddhist temple or anything, but the intention to connect with something greater than oneself is a human quality. And religious buildings often are doing that. It's just the vocabulary of what you want to get, whatever you want to call that power to be, whether you want to call it life or the universe or God or whatever. I really don't care. Um, but the intention is what's is what's interesting, and it obviously breeds a context for creativity. There's always that wonderful story of the two um, masons chiseling away at stones and one of them one of the one of the masons is asked what are you doing and he's like i'm just chiseling at this damn stone i've been chiseling the damn stone every single day that's all i do i just chisel 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 the stone and the other mason was asked what are you doing and he said i am building a cathedral i am building a cathedral that will stand here for hundreds if not thousands of years, to serve a community and connect humanity with a greater power. So, and I, and I think when you get in contact with that context, right, and this is why someone like Frank Lloyd Wright was able to design spiritual buildings for all sorts of different communities. It didn't matter what religion they were. He was very connected to kind of, you know, organic architectural principles, using nature as a form of inspiration, drawing from the magnificent potential that is unlocked in, you know, in the universe that's there. Um, and when you, when you set up a spiritual building for a design, the impetus, the idea there, contemplative space, a space to connect to human excellence, a space to connect with God, it, it provides a fertile ground for creativity. And that's exactly what we've got here in this little cute church outside of Beckenham. Good afternoon. Welcome. So I just wanted to capture a little bit of the peaceful ambience of where I'm standing right now. I'm actually in the centre of London, in, uh, in West London, in Holland Park. But I'm actually in the Kyoto Gardens, which was... They've been here since 1992. They were donated by the Japanese Chamber of Commerce in celebration of a hundred years of the J Japanese society in Britain and kind of cementing 
one of these kind of uh, gestures from one country to another to cement a relationship. And the garden itself is a beautiful, traditionally designed Japanese garden, complete with running water, um, a sort of reflecting pool in the center, beautifully considered placed rocks, bamboo, and of course, an incredible array of different planting, uh, of which I can't say much more, except it looks fantastic. And I'm standing here, it's springtime, um, the blossom is coming out um, and the colours are vibrant and it's a truly wonderful, wonderful little space to, to be in and particularly to find it sort of nestled within the depths of busy West London. And I think this is really, if you're ever in town, this is a wonderful place just to go and visit, go and have a cup of coffee, sit round, take with a lover, with a... With a on a date or something like that. It's a, a very beautiful, peaceful um, place for contemplation and for a little bit of stillness, just to enjoy the fantastic gardens and the serenity of the traditional Japanese design. Good morning, it's a beautiful, glorious bank holiday Monday. I'm in Northumberland. It is uh, about 17 degrees. I'm sitting by a beautiful lake in the monastery where I do a little bit of work. We've been working on um, a project here on some old farmhouses that are about 300 years old and there's a group of Theravadan Buddhist monks that have been living here for perhaps the last 35 years or so and they've adapted these old farmhouses into a working monastery um, and I've been doing some work here where we're kind of revamping and modernizing um, some parts of these buildings, giving them some very functional spaces, a scullery and a larder for them to do their washing uh, of various items and store, give them more food storage, um, and also creating a set of kind of contemplative spaces and kind of like talking conversational spaces. Um, as well as a kind of glazed walkway that links and stitches these old buildings together. So they're kind of interstitial spaces is the architectural terminology for them, the spaces in between buildings. Um, and there's a courtyard, an inner courtyard, um, which is also being modernised and revamped and kind of just bringing back a heart to the uh, monastic environment and I wanted to talk a little bit about on this podcast um, some of the principles behind what I call contemplative design um, which is an architecture which is intended for um, bringing about and facilitating a certain kind of self-awareness um, you know, it's very much in the remit of phenomenology and that kind of approach of architecture um, where you're creating, let's call it quote-unquote spiritual spaces. These are spaces that bring you back to an awareness of yourself, an awareness of your body, an awareness of the environment. 
there is a powerful presence behind these kinds of buildings, these kinds of structures. Um, and the ultimate sort of effect of it is one that is um, peaceful, contemplative. Um, for me personally, these are the kinds of buildings that I absolutely adore. They're not the ones where you walk in and you're suddenly like, wow, look at that, that's incredible, what a phenomenal space. I like those types of awe-striking buildings, that kind of iconic architecture has its place, but this is a very different kind of architecture. It's often a building where you might enter into it and you'll feel a certain uh, presence, a certain peacefulness, a certain fascination but really an awareness of yourself and there are often buildings where you walk away from afterwards thinking about them. What is this? What happened there? Um, and just feeling another level of connection to your environment and your own sort of understanding about life. So um, the monastic environment up here is very interesting because the lifestyle really is what the architecture is about the buildings themselves are buildings but it's the processes and the interaction with the um, environment and the buildings that really make this place very unique now the monastic code here has about 227 different rules of what they call the vinaya um, and lots of these rules might seem uh, to somebody first encountering them as quite archaic, kind of incredibly restrictive and constraining, um, almost bizarre uh, in, in some of their sort of, um, you know, some of their sort of functions. But ultimately, they are there to, des they're designed, um, and they're a very old, ancient tradition that's been around for maybe two and a half thousand years and it's kind of traveled from having its origins in India from the time of the Buddha and then this particular tradition um, is a Thai forest monastery so it's kind of there would have been a, a certain amount of cultural appropriation in that journey from ancient India into Thailand and then it's been adopted and taken back to um, not taken back, but it's been um, taken to uh, the West. So these sorts of, these code, this vinaya, this uh, monastic discipline, um, is very much at the heart of the monastic lifestyle. Um, and the, it, the, the contemplative lifestyle is very much one which is about understanding and looking at your own subjective experience of life and of reality. So these rules of the Vinaya are designed to stop your mind from gallivanting off, proliferating into all sorts of different views and ideas and distractions these rules, these seemingly constraining rules, are there to continually bring you back to your practice and your inquiry of your own subjective experience. Um, and having an architecture that supports that is very, very interesting. Um, I you can hear all the... Uh, there's a real chorus of cows and sheep what's happening today but they are really singing quite an orchestral chant which is kind of following 
and falling and filling the entire um, valley here, which is quite interesting. So, as I was saying, the architecture that supports this kind of lifestyle is one that is needs to be very sensitive to the routines and the cycles of monastic life. Um, it needs to have a certain harmony with its environment. Monastics, I've always been very impressed here with the abbot of the monastery who often has a thinking about the building um, which goes off into many hundreds of years and thinking about the next generation um, generations of monastics that will be doing their training in this locale um, as well as how the building needs to be operating harmoniously with its natural environment it's not leaving a gigantic ecological footprint in fact it was trying to reduce that down as, as much as possible um, and also that aesthetically it's beautiful I think that's another uh, quality about particularly working with these old buildings that we've got is being able to produce something that um, is aesthetically pleasing and contemporary um, and is able really to give space to the monastic cycles and routines is very sensitive to that culture uh, and there's also a set of spaces that really kind of allows the natural environment and the natural aspects of contemplative practice to um, naturally occur and be facilitated. So that's what I'm going to say on this for the for the time for the time being. I could we could go on a little bit more but I really want to sort of make the point about that the architecture is part of a process and it is it is essentially performed and brought to life through the routines and this discipline this active practical code of training um, training the mind in order to be able to sort of see how the subjective experience is created and ultimately in the Buddhist context how we create our own suffering um, this kind of uh, you know when we start taking responsibility for our own subjective experience and our you know sort of start viewing ourselves as the authors of our own reality um, we take ownership of the suffering that we create for ourselves and this environment ultimately is designed to show us it is there to support us in our own study our own meditation practice um, of the nature of suffering <laughs>